More than 20% of people in faith communities are survivors of childhood sexual abuse. But sadly, churches are often the last place a victim of abuse can find help and healing. I'm Kelly Downing, and my dream is a church where survivors like me and so many others can feel safe, be heard, and find healing. Until that happens, this is Survivor Sanctuary, a podcast for survivors of sexual abuse who are navigating the road to healing and for anyone who wants to be a part of the major heart renovation the church needs so that our faith communities can truly become sanctuaries for survivors. Hey, welcome to Survivor Sanctuary. It is Kelly. I want to thank you so much for joining me on the podcast today. And I also want to take a quick second to just thank everyone who has reached out to me via the new Facebook group, Survivor Sanctuary, or by sending me an email to kelly at survivorsanctuary.com. I've even gotten some Facebook messages. And I just want you to know that I so appreciate you sharing your stories with me. Whenever a survivor trusts me with their story and shares it, I'm so honored by that. And it is at the same time, a little hard to hear what some of you have gone through. And I I spend a lot of time with my blood pressure elevated when I hear some of the things that you've had to go through as survivors. But we kind of get it that we're all in similar positions. Not every form of abuse is exactly the same. Not everyone experiences the exact same details or responds to abuse of any kind in the exact same way. But there are so many similarities that kind of tie us and our stories together. And I just think that it's great that we can share those. So I want you to know when you share your story with me, I always consider that an honor. And I just want you to know I'm definitely moved by the stories that I'm hearing. And it's just an encouragement knowing that maybe something that you hear on the podcast is going to be a help to you as you heal, as you learn more about surviving abuse and all that. So thanks a lot for sharing those stories with me. So on today's episode, I want to talk about a situation that some survivors deal with, some don't but a situation that keeps popping up in my life, mostly on social media, I will say that, and that is when pastors who have been credibly accused or even who have admitted to sexually abusing children return to positions of power. And I will say that this happens not only when children are abused, but it happens when pastors and ministry leaders abuse adults as well, because clergy sexual abuse of adults is a thing that happens quite a bit. In essence, if any person is in a position of power over the person that they are initiating sexual contact with, that is an abuse of power. It's abuse because there is a power differential And the person who is being abused or being sexualized by a leader is someone who cannot consent because of that power differential. So we understand it a lot when it involves children. A child cannot consent to sexual activity. When I was six years old, I didn't necessarily try to stop my abuser because I trusted him and I didn't know what was happening to me. I didn't realize it, but I was unable to consent because as a six-year-old child and him a grown man, that power differential is huge. So it's obvious to most people that a six-year-old cannot consent to sexual activity. It's a little less obvious to some people, 
when it involves an adult. But this keeps coming up for me online because anytime you advocate for the abused, anytime you suggest that a person who has abused should no longer be in a position of spiritual authority, you get a lot of pushback from people who either are abusers themselves or they know someone who is, and they've chosen to just say, well, I care about this person and they've asked God for forgiveness, so who am I to deny them this forgiveness? And then they take issue with advocates who don't want or don't believe that abusers should return to positions of power. So this is a situation that I've been running into a lot, but this past week, it's just really been weighing on my heart because a particular situation that has happened. So you might remember Kelly Haynes from the second episode of Survivor Sanctuary. She told her story of how she was sexually abused by her Christian school teacher for more than four years, and eventually he served time in prison for his sexual abuse of Kelly. Well, he found a church and became immersed in the life of this church and eventually became the pastor. If you want to go back and listen to episode two, I think it'll be eye-opening for you if you haven't heard that one yet, to hear Kelly's story. Well, she tweeted about it, the fact that the pastor of this church sexually abused her, served time in prison for abusing her, and was also credibly accused of sexually abusing other people in different ministries and different positions of power. He's now pastoring. And this church has been told that he served time in prison for this, that he is a child abuser, and they have chosen to keep him on as pastor. And they've gone so far as to say, even if we had known when we hired him that this had happened, we still would have hired him anyway because God forgives, blah, 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 all that good stuff. And that is the excuse they use for keeping him in that position of authority as pastor of their church. So Kelly tweeted about her story, and then an advocate, Dee Parsons, on Twitter retweeted Kelly's tweet. And sorry if you're not familiar with Twitter. I'm assuming a lot of people who are listening definitely are. But uh, Dee Parsons retweeted Kelly's tweet and said, what kind of people go to a church like this? Well, they began to get comments on this post from three different accounts. And they were all accounts with no followers. So essentially, people were actually creating fake Twitter accounts so they could comment on Dee Parsons' tweet. And this happens a lot when people want to defend child molesters, but they don't want people to know who they are. And so these people could be the abuser themselves, or they could be his family members, or maybe his church family members, and they just want to defend him. So there were comments left on this tweet that were quoting scriptures about not judging. And someone asked D, it's only God who's supposed to judge, and they quoted a scripture very out of context as well. Uh, Scriptures from the Psalms that definitely were not written in defense of child abusers being pastors, but quoting scriptures and then asking D, are you God? You know, who are you to say that this man should not be a pastor is essentially what it is. So I, you know, I commented back and I offered some quotes of scripture that talk about what it means to be qualified to be a pastor. And I just kept getting responses from these three different accounts, but I'm pretty sure they're operated by the same person, just over and over saying, quoting different scriptures and defending the fact that this man is still a pastor. 
And it frustrates me to no end. And I realize, you know, people are going to push back and they're going to leave comments. And sometimes you just have to leave things alone. And, you know, it wasn't an uncivil discussion necessarily, but anytime I would quote a scripture explaining why people don't want child abusers to be pastors, um, they would push back with another scripture and, you know, more questions about basically just accusing uh, the people who are saying that child molesters shouldn't pastor of being unkind, unloving, unchristian-like, and all that good stuff. And I wish I could say that this one Twitter exchange is the extent of what I've dealt with, but we deal with it all the time. If you have spent any time advocating for people who have been sexually abused, or if you're an abuse victim and you've shared your story, you've probably experienced this pushback from church people, and it's usually from Christians, and that part frustrates me more than anything else. It's usually Christians that jump immediately to the defense of these child molesters and people who have a trigger warning, like we're talking about in this episode and on this podcast in general about sexual abuse. But this man who is a pastor raped a girl for four years and served time in prison because the secular authorities understand how heinous a crime that is. And yet this church wants to allow him to pastor And he's not pastoring just adults. He's pastoring children as well. And vulnerable adults who are going through hardships, a lot of people end up in churches because they're looking for answers because they're in a vulnerable place in life. And essentially, you have a pastor who has taken advantage of vulnerability for years of his life, and he is now the pastor of this church. So I wanted to address this a little bit today. Um, And yes, it is a reaction to some things that I've been dealing with online this week, but I think that it's important in general for survivors of abuse and for anyone who advocates for survivors of abuse, because you are going to experience this from time to time. It's just going to happen. You're going to have people pushing back and saying, why are you saying that this man can't be a pastor? You know, he has repented of his wrongdoing and God has forgiven him. So who are we to not forgive him? And that sounds really good in theory. But here's the issue. What we're doing is we're applying just a general blanket of grace onto a situation and we are acting as though God's forgiveness then gives people the permission to go ahead and minister in any way that they desire to. And I don't understand this. If I could say anything about surviving sexual abuse in the church, the thing that I understand the least is the idea that many Christians have that being a spiritual leader in a church, in a ministry organization, in life in general, is the God-given right of every Christian. I can't find any scripture that says that it is the right of anyone to be a spiritual leader. In fact, a lot of the scriptures tell us the requirements for being a leader, the qualifications for being a church leader, elders as they were referred to in scripture. So if people believe that the Bible is true, and I know that I may have some people listening to the podcast, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're not a believer in the Bible, and I'm just speaking from a place of being a Christian myself, 
and you know, growing up believing that the Bible is God's word, inspired by God. And most people who argue against advocates who don't want leaders who have abused children to be leading churches, most of them believe in scripture and they will use scripture to defend their position. But if you believe that scripture is God breathed, if you believe that you know we can trust what it says, then you have to believe that when Paul wrote the qualifications for elders or church leaders, that that is something that is also inspired by God. And that is also scripture that we should apply in our lives and in our churches. So if there are a list of qualifications for elders, that tells me two things. One, there are qualifications for being an elder. Like there are literal qualifications you need to meet in order to be an overseer, as it's called in some translations of scripture. If you want to be an overseer, a leader of other Christians, then there are qualifications you have to meet. The second thing that it tells me, if there are qualifications for being an overseer, for being an elder, for being a church leader, that means that there are things that you can do that disqualify you from being a pastor, from being an elder, from being a teacher, from being a spiritual leader. Qualifications imply that there are ways that you can disqualify yourself. And this is the argument that most people will not answer when you engage them in conversation. So for instance, when I quoted scripture that says that elders and overseers are to be above reproach, that means to be above reproach means you do nothing that can be called into question, that can call the gospel into question. Your life is to be above reproach according to these scriptures. Now, Titus chapter 1 and 1 Timothy chapter 3 are two of the main areas of scripture that talk about the qualifications for being an elder or an overseer in church, but it's all over the scriptures. Uh, There are qualifications, which mean that there are things that you can do to disqualify yourself. And when I see the scripture that tells us that an overseer is to be above reproach, I'm pretty much convinced that anyone who has sexually abused a child is immediately disqualified from being a church leader. To be above reproach is essentially to be above anyone being able to express some kind of disapproval or disappointment in you. To be above rebuke, to be above admonishment, and If someone has sexually abused a child, they definitely are not above reproach. And I think that, honestly, that's all that we need is that scripture right there. It is in Titus chapter 1 and verse 6 that tells us an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. It goes on to say he must not be arrogant, quick-tempered, a drunkard, violent, greedy for gain. He must be hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. And these are just a part of the list of qualifications for an overseer. So when someone says you're being judgmental, for suggesting that a child molester not be a church leader. This is a scripture that basically contradicts them. And one thing I've noticed in these exchanges when I when I choose to 
get engaged in a Twitter debate or a Facebook debate with someone who is defending a child abuser, which sometimes it's difficult for me to not do that because I have been a victim myself and I'm an advocate for victims. So one thing I've noticed is that you will quote this scripture that talks about how an overseer A leader has to be above reproach, has to be holy and upright and disciplined and, you know, all of these lists of qualifications. When people respond, they never respond. And this has happened this past week when I'm talking about the people who were basically pushing back against Kelly Haynes' story of abuse and how people don't believe that the man who abused her should be pastoring a church. They will never respond to these scriptures outright. They will just take other snippets of scripture that talk about how we shouldn't judge. And I'm not a biblical scholar, and I probably should have started with this disclaimer. I am not. I did go to Bible college, uh, so I have a minor in Bible, but I skipped class a lot, and I was really good at guessing the answers on tests, so I'm not going to say I have spent a lot of time reading the Bible. I'm not a biblical scholar, so I'm not trying to sell myself as one. I just think that some things, when you read them in scripture, are very clear and very plain. And this is one of those things. In Titus 1 and verses 6 and 7, an overseer, an elder, a pastor, a teacher, is to be above reproach. And that means that nothing that they do should be able to be called into question or reproached by anyone. So why is there such a defense of abusive people who have obviously been disqualified from ministry, according to scripture, why are there so many people defending them? Why is there such pushback against people who would say, this man cannot be a pastor? Scripturally, he can't. Scripturally, he is disqualified from being an overseer. Scripturally, he is disqualified from leading your church, and yet he is leading your church. So why? Why are we ignoring that scripture? So most people will start quoting scriptures about, you know, judge not lest ye be judged and and all of those. And I'm not saying that, that those aren't wonderful scriptures that we should all live by. But when you're quoting them out of context, you're not getting the entire picture. Because yes, the Bible does say judge not lest you be judged. But Paul also says in scripture, the same Bible that you believe, that we are to judge those who are inside. We're not to judge people outside of the church, which means if you're a Christian, You should not be judging the lives of non-Christians and expecting non-Christians or people who don't believe in the gospel to be behaving uh, in a way that you feel people should be when they do believe in the gospel. But Paul says we are to judge those who are inside and we are to remove the evil person from among us. So simply saying that we shouldn't judge someone as a basis for allowing a child predator to be a pastor is completely and utterly ridiculous. So I had somebody ask me a question. Um, It's probably been a couple of months now, but he asked me, why is it that churches defend abusers? Why do we do it? And I thought, you know, that is a really, really good question. And I think that one of the reasons is because it is a lot easier to believe that a predator has changed than it is to go through the hard work of supporting a person that has been preyed upon. Because it's not an easy process to support a survivor of abuse. It's not something that you can fit into a neat little box. It's not something that's gonna be quick and easy with a really miraculous happy ending. It's something that's gonna be a little bit hard. And I also think that it is because it is so much easier to see a quick story of redemption 
in a person who has committed great evil and now claims to be sorry than it is to see a story of redemption in someone that has just been broken by abuse. So I look at it this way. We are obsessed with redemption and we just are as human beings. It's not even Christians only. It is humanity in general. And all you need to do is look at the plot of pretty much every single movie ever invented to know that we love stories of redemption. We love to see someone rise up from the ashes, someone who is on the outs with everybody at the beginning of a film, and suddenly, you know, by the end, there has been this sweet redemption and we get to see this big change. An easier way to look at it is if you've ever been about to go on a diet and you want to try some new diet that everybody's just like, ooh, this is going to be a great one, maybe you look up before and after pictures. That is something that most people love to do. I mean, look at Pinterest, look anywhere, and you know that weight loss before and afters are super, super compelling. And here's the thing that I love about them. You get to see what somebody looked like before, overweight, unhappy, not particularly attractive, and then you get to see them on the right side in the after photo as this perfectly sculpted, happy, healthy person that has just made this massive transformation. And you know what our favorite part is about that? And I'm sure it's subconscious, but our favorite part about that is we don't have to see any of the in-between time. In a split second, we can see the before and we can see the after. And there it is. It took us no time. It took no pain. It took no effort for us to see before and then after. And it also helps us that we don't have to see the struggle in between because it gives us hope that we can just have this magic, you know, before and then after without any pain or suffering. We don't have to see what happens in the middle. And so it's a very quick redemption story. And it might seem silly to you to think of a story of redemption as like a before and after weight loss photo, but I think that it works because we don't have to see anything in the middle. We don't have to walk through the really long, really difficult process that this person had to walk through when they were actually trying to lose this weight. Because I promise they didn't just decide they were going to lose weight and a split second later they were thin and healthy. Like that's not the way that it works. There's a lot of sweat, tears, maybe even sometimes blood in between the before and after. But all we get to see is before and after, side by side, in a split second, an entire story of redemption. So how does that tie into the reasons that we defend abusers? I think it's because their stories of redemption are very quick. And I say redemption very lightly, because I don't actually believe that in a lot of cases, they're true stories of redemption. In my story, for instance, when I came forward, the man who abused me was finally questioned by other church leaders about what he had done. And he would not admit what he had done. He vehemently denied that he had ever abused me or ever abused anyone. But thankfully, the church leaders believed my story. They knew that I didn't have any reason to lie about this. And so they knew I was telling the truth and that he must just not want to admit that he'd done it. So they kept pushing him to confess. And he finally did come back to confess After a long time of denying it, he finally came back to confess. They were very careful to tell me that he shed tears because in their minds, if someone sheds tears, they're definitely very sorry for what they've done. But if you know anything about abusive people or narcissists, you know that they go first to tears. Any expert will tell you anytime that you confront an abuser, 
there are going to be tears and they are going to seem repentant. And so it's not necessarily something that you can trust. But he finally came back and he finally admitted that he had abused me and a couple other girls as well. And so they were satisfied. He's cried. He's so sorry. He said that all he wants to do is serve God for the rest of his life. So voila, we have this wonderful story of redemption. We have a man who sexually abused children for years. And what a horrible thing. But then he has cried some tears and he has asked for forgiveness. And so boom, redemption story. And people love that. They just love it. And then you have the victim on the other side where their story of redemption and the redemption of what's happened to them is not something that's quick and easy. It's not something that happens in the twinkling of an eye because we know that people who have suffered from abuse often will carry the effects of that abuse with them for the remainder of their lives. It's not something that they get over in a blink. It's not something that is not going to haunt them or affect them at some point in their future. Many people will live out the effects of that abuse in their lives for the rest of their lives. And it's terrible that that's a reality, but it's also just a reality. And I know in my own life, I deal every single day with the effects of having been sexually abused. And I don't say that because I'm looking for pity or I want people to feel sorry for me or because I love pain and I want to hold on to it. It's, it's not true. They're very subtle ways sometimes that I deal with sexual abuse in my life. But I was abused at six years old. It has been quite a few years since that happened. And every single day, there are effects in my life. There are things that I am dealing with because of the fact that someone took advantage of me sexually when I was a child. And so that is a little bit more difficult to swallow. It's much easier to swallow the story of, oh, someone did something unthinkable, and now they're just emotionally wrecked over the fact that they abused a child. They're so sorry, and all they want to do is be forgiven and live out the rest of their lives serving God and not being terrible. That's a magical story of redemption right there. And it's super quick because in one office meeting in the church and in five minutes of some tears, you have the before and you have the after. It's super quick. And what an awesome story and what an easier story to use as an example of redemption than looking at someone who's abused and saying, okay, well, you know, they they told their story and... Their perpetrator got in trouble, maybe he didn't, but they've spoken out and they've gone to counseling maybe, and they're going to church and reading their Bible and they're praying for God to heal them. But for some reason, these people are still having issues. For some reason, they're still not at peace with what has happened to them. They're still not at the point where they're like, you know what, I was abused, but it totally doesn't affect me anymore. I don't need any help. I don't need somebody to hold me by the hand and walk with me through darkness because I'm totally redeemed and everything's fine. That's just not the way that it works. And so I think that that version of redemption or the lack thereof is what scares Christians. People who believe that God redeems even the most broken person we're scared when we look at the fact that someone can be damaged to the extent that even though they believe in God, even though they are Christians and their salvation is assured and they're heading to heaven someday, and even though they believe that God is all-powerful and redemptive and amazing, they're still struggling with the effects of abuse. And that's really hard for some Christians to wrap their brains around. 
I just honestly believe that it is because it's it's not easy. It's like if you watched a SlimFast commercial and it started with a before picture and then it was like 60 seconds of a montage of this person trying to say no to cake and trying to go walking when they haven't done any form of exercise for years and you're not seeing that magical, oh, the person with a slim waistline like within seconds of seeing their before picture they're not gonna sell many cans of SlimFast because it implies to people that there's a process they have to go through to get to that end result of now being super slim and looking amazing in a bikini or whatever it is that SlimFast is selling. And we love those stories of quick redemption. And I don't know if it's just because it's hard for us to handle trying to walk through the healing process with victims of sexual abuse, or if it's because we don't know how to think about the fact that God allows this kind of pain to happen in people's lives. It could be a combination of both things. There could be other facets to it as well. But I think that our obsession with redemption stories, and I mean, as Christians, you know, we have the biggest redemption story of all time. So I'm not scoffing at that. Like redemption is an amazing thing. But just because our salvation is assured, And just because we know that we're going to spend eternity in heaven where there's going to be no more crying and no more pain, that does not guarantee us a life on earth where we are not suffering and we are not struggling because we just do. It's a part of the human condition, you know, and I think that this attitude from a lot of Christians that you just need to be fine, you need to be okay, because if you believe in God, then you should be okay. You're calling that into question when you're a victim who's saying, yes, I believe in God, if you do. Yes, I believe in salvation. I believe that all my sins are forgiven and that I'm headed to heaven someday. And yet, uh, I, I struggle with an anxiety disorder, you know, or I struggle with debilitating depression, or I have some kind of a mental health disorder because of what happened to me when I was a kid. And no amount of praying and reading scripture just makes that magically go away. These are our stories, and this is what it is to live out the effects of abuse. And I believe there is redemption. I definitely do. But it's not something that we're going to see in a blink. It's not something that you're going to sit down and your pastor is going to quote a couple of scriptures to you and you're magically going to be okay. You're going to have to walk through this process. And it's not the quick and easy before and after photo process. It is something that takes time. It is something that you may not see a complete answer to in this lifetime. And that's hard. Like it's hard to deal with. So I will, I will own that and I will give that benefit of the doubt to Christians who kind of just grasp for those super quick redemption stories. So for the man who abused Kelly Haynes, uh, John Longacre is his name. He's pastoring in Vermont. People know that he he raped this girl for years. And he's serving as their pastor after serving time in prison. I think that that is such a slap in the face to the gospel. Not that he can't be forgiven. Not that he can't be redeemed for the things that he's done wrong. That's not the question. The question is... Is this man qualified to teach other people what it means to be a follower of Christ? Is this man qualified to be an overseer of a flock of believers in Jesus? Is he qualified? And scripture tells us he's not. 
it tells us that he's not. So I would challenge somebody that disagrees with this to look at Titus chapter one and to look at the other scriptures that talk about what it means to be qualified to be a leader and actually respond based on those scriptures. Because when I quote those scriptures, usually people ignore them and they just come back with their own scriptures, something from the Psalms, something from another part of the Bible that's not talking about people being overseers of Christians. Um, But that's basically just to shame Christians for requiring that leaders be qualified to lead if they want to be pastors. And I just think that it's, it's sad that people aren't responding to those scriptures. They're just accusing abuse survivors and advocates of being judgmental and unforgiving, of stirring up strife in the church and sowing discord and trying to play God. And it's not that at all. We're just saying like, okay, I'm not telling you that a person who has abused a child sexually or in any way cannot repent, cannot truly be sorry for what they've done and cannot be forgiven by God. It's not what I'm saying at all. But to use the qualifications for a church overseer to say, this man should not be leading a congregation. This man should not be a ministry leader. That is not the same thing as saying this man can't be forgiven because God can't forgive this sin. And I think that when people accuse us of that, it's just this straw man argument because that's not what we're saying at all. Like, that's not what I'm saying. I can't speak for every single advocate. I can't speak for every single survivor. But none of us are saying, as far as I see in my day-to-day interactions with other survivors and other advocates, we're not saying there's no way God can forgive this sin. There's no way that a person who has sexually abused a child can be truly repentant. That's not what we're saying. What we're saying is, despite the fact that you may be able to be forgiven for what you've done, despite the fact that you may truly be repentant, there are certain sins that disqualify you from leading a church. And this, the sexual abuse of a child, is one of them, period. Like, that's it. You can be a Christian. No one's telling you you can't believe in Jesus. No one's telling you you can't love him. What we are saying is that you have sexually abused a child or you've sexually abused an adult who is vulnerable, and you've abused your position of power. Therefore, you have disqualified yourself, not based on what I think, but based on what the Bible says. It will continue to frustrate me, I'm sure, because people don't want to see this. They don't want to see it. You know, they want to say, like, God forgives any sin. No sin is greater than another. A sin is a sin. And that's, that is an argument for a different podcast. Uh, But even if you believe that, when you look at the New Testament qualifications for a person that is to lead a church, the number one thing is that he is to be above reproach. And someone who has sexually abused a child is just not one of those people. They're no longer qualified. So the question is not, why aren't you forgiving people who abuse children? That's not the right question. Because that's not really what's happening. I mean, I'm sure there are people who have trouble with forgiveness, and that's another another podcast episode as well. But that's not really what's happening. We're saying, yes, you can be forgiven, but that doesn't absolve you of any consequences of the sin you've committed. It just doesn't. If you murder somebody, you're going to go to prison. And nobody's going to say, because God has forgiven you for that murder and you're really sorry, you shouldn't have to go to prison. No one in the church is going to argue that. I mean, I think very few people would. But then when it comes to the sexual abuse of a child, we don't 
use that same logic. Oh, well, yes, he abused a child, but he's so sorry for it. So who are we to say he shouldn't be a pastor? How unforgiving of us to say that this man shouldn't be the spiritual leader of an entire group of people, including children. Like, who are we to say that? Because he's sorry. Well, I think that a lot of people are sorry for the things that they've done that are heinously wrong, and they're still living out the consequences because forgiveness does not erase the consequences of doing terrible things. Can you be forgiven? Yes. Will all the consequences go away because you've been forgiven? No. And you can't find anything in scripture that will back up that belief. But when we say that a person should be able to pastor just because they've repented or they've asked for forgiveness for being a child molester, like that's essentially what we're saying, that forgiveness of sin and repentance erase consequences for sin. And they don't. They just don't. Like if I go and in a fit of rage, bash somebody's car with a baseball bat, and then I'm like, oh my goodness, what was I thinking? How did I let my anger get so out of control? I'm so, so sorry. I'm so sorry. Yeah, it's great that I'm sorry. Can I be forgiven if I ask? Of course. Am I going to have to pay for the damages to that car and possibly serve some time in jail? Yep. Am I going to have a criminal record? Most likely. Like that is just how it works. And Honestly, today I just needed to get that off my chest because I know that there's no point to continuing to argue with these people online. Um, I will say my piece and then I feel like I just need to walk away from the conversation. But we literally have people who are creating accounts to harass a survivor of sexual abuse, to harass her and say that there's something wrong with her for the fact that she doesn't believe that a child sexual abuser should be a pastor. Like people are literally putting all this energy into telling her that she's wrong and that she's terrible, uh, rather than putting their energy into finding out what the truth is and what scripture actually says about this. And what scripture actually says is, if you are not above reproach, you're not to be a church leader. And if you've sexually abused a child or sexually abused anyone, you're not above reproach. You never will be because the first thing the world is going to say when they look at the church leader that has been embroiled in some massive scandal, whether it's abusing adults or children, the first thing the world is going to say is, what in the world is that person doing pastoring? They've done this horrible thing. What are they doing pastoring? Like, this is ridiculous. Even Christians can say the same thing. And we're saying it. So obviously, these people are not above reproach and therefore should not be pastoring churches. We're not saying it. I mean, we are saying it, but scripture is actually saying it. (laughs) Like there's actual scripture that says this very thing. And people are ignoring this in favor of cheap grace. It's a grace that says you can be forgiven for anything. And then it can be just as if you've never done anything wrong. And in the Lamb's book of life, that might be true in Your relationship with God and your relationship with him as it pertains to that sin, that may be true. He's not remembering or holding those sins against you, and you are still guaranteed salvation if you're truly sorry and you truly repent. But what it doesn't guarantee you is a position in a church just because you want one. So don't know where it came from. I'd love to hear your ideas. But the idea that it is the right of a Christian to be a church leader or to be a ministry leader 
or to be in spiritual leadership of any kind. Like, I don't know where we got that idea that it's the right of every Christian because the Bible tells us it's not like it's clear. Scripture is clear that it is not everyone's God given right just because they are saved and they are believers in Jesus, that that means they're allowed to be in spiritual authority over other believers. Like there's a list of qualifications, which implies there are ways to be unqualified. And I will forever and a day believe that a child sexual abuser or anyone who has sexually abused anyone, an adult, a child, any vulnerable person, they are not qualified to be church leaders. So that's what I've got for you today. I'm going to step down from my soapbox for a minute. I just needed to get that off my chest. And I hope that's okay with you that I could just vent that for a while because that's a lot to say in a tweet. 200 characters is not going to cover everything that I just said. Well, I hope that you enjoy the rest of today, whatever you've got going on. And I hope you'll join us on the Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group because it is a wonderful place where we can interact and just support one another. And if you've had somebody who has treated you with disdain because you believe that an abusive person shouldn't be a church leader or you've been abused in any way by people who want to defend your abuser rather than standing up for you like I think that every single survivor understands that we've all been through it and I want us to just be able to support each other and on the Facebook group or in messages we can do that for each other so I want to encourage you to join us well I'll see you on the next episode of Survivor Sanctuary Thanks for listening to Survivor Sanctuary with me, Kelly Downing. If you found value in today's podcast, please leave us a review on iTunes. Not only will it put a big smile on my face, more importantly, your reviews will help make it easier for other survivors and survivor advocates to find this podcast. Also, make sure you subscribe to Survivor Sanctuary wherever you listen to podcasts so you never miss an episode. You can also join the conversation in our Survivor Sanctuary Facebook group. And for exclusive content, be sure to visit SurvivorSanctuary.com. Join me next time for another episode of Survivor Sanctuary. See you then.